Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, November 13th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, more than 100 call center employees in Hattiesburg strike, demanding higher wages and an end to union-busting tactics. Then Roll the Play is premiering in Baton Rouge with mixed reviews from both people who support pro-choice and denounce abortion. Plus, the number of babies born with syphilis has grown rapidly in Mississippi since 2016. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. More than 100 employees at the Maximus Call Center in Hattiesburg went on strike Thursday. They're calling for a minimum of $25 per hour, better health benefits, and an end to what they call union-busting tactics. Maximus is the federal government's largest contractor. They help callers enroll in Medicaid, Medicare, and the ACA's healthcare.gov. Christina Jimenez has worked at Maximus for three years as a Medicare representative. She tells our whips will stribbling. She loves her job, but with three small children, Hamina says she can barely make ends meet. She makes sixteen dollars twenty cents an hour. We are on strike today because we deserve to have $25 per hour. We deserve to be able to create a union because as of right now, Maximus has union busting tactics. Um, and then we are also just demanding that we are seen. We are not a number. We're not a robot. We are actual human beings that are struggling every day to put either food on the table or pay a light bill or water bill. Yeah, yeah. Y'all are asking for twenty-five. What is the the average uh, rate or starting rate right now? Uh, as a tier one Medicare representative, I make sixteen dollars and twenty cents. That is nothing. I have three young children, one who has asthma, one who wears glasses, and then I have a little girl who likes pretty dresses. So with all that, I can barely make ends meet. And I'm now going to be a two-income house, two household. So imagine struggling with two incomes. And there's, and what is, like, the, you know, the, the irony there of, like, helping you know, people handle their health care claims, but, you know, worrying about being able to afford health care if you, if you were need to need it, if you were to have an accident or in regards to your, your uh, child who has asthma. So with the job that I have, I do talk to people who are of older generation or who are dis- have disabilities. So having to explain how their insurance works 
and how they can get their claims paid for, and I turn around and go to the doctor, have my children go to the doctor, and my claims are not paid for. I struggle to even go to the doctor because I can't afford the copay. Just talk a bit about what how it built up to this strike, because you know strikes don't just materialize out of the thin air. It has to be um, a, a, a consensus among workers that that management is not listening to concerns, and you know have it rise to the point that you take you know severe action. So, just like what is it taking to get to this point? What's taken is that we are not heard. We've told them, hey, we don't want to strike. We love our job. But if you cannot meet our demands or even try to meet our demands, we're going to strike. You will have to close sites. If you don't want that to happen if, or if you don't want to take calls, just meet us at the table. That's all we're asking. And uh, what do you think about, you know, this isn't a situation that is unique to to the Maxima site in Mississippi. There are uh, sites in several other states that workers are going on strike today. What do you think about that that solidarity between Maximus workers in different states? It, it is amazing to see all of our fellow co-workers, regardless where you are, fighting for your rights. As long as we stand together, Maximus can't touch us. This is, you know, one three-hour strike. What are the plans for the future if uh, management continues to block out the, you know, the demands for change? If you do not meet, meet our changes or accept our changes, prepare to answer some phone calls. Christina Jimenez is an employee at the Maximus Call Center in Hattiesburg. Also joining the strike, Andrea Carter, who helps answer calls across five lines of services. She says she's worked for Maximus for five years and says she remains at a wage of $16.78 per hour. Which is very unaffordable for the job title that I have. For as in my health benefits, very, very, very unaffordable when it comes to deductible, going to the doctor. Um, I have a medical condition that I haven't been to see my doctor because it's unaffordable. Um, I have four small kids, as you stated. One has asthma, three wears glasses, um, and older kids that do need more as they get older as being women. And How do you feel about the fact that, you know, it's not only Maximus workers in Hattiesburg going on strike today, that it's happening in multiple states, that this is a, a problem that's, that's isolated here? I feel good about the decision of us going on strike. As they say, when we move, they move, just like that. And it benefits all of us and not just one. And that's, and that's well, and like she said, that she loves her job, didn't want to go on strike. Do you feel the same way you've been here five years? I love my job. For my dignity and my respect, the amount they pay for the job that we do, it's just unaffordable. It's not right at all. So I do feel as if... We do deserve the $25 an hour. Workers were on strike Thursday for that morning. The Hattiesburg Center has held at least half a dozen of them in 2022 and this year. Maximus has not met any of the workers' demands. Coming up, Roll the Play is premiering in Baton Rouge, causing mixed reactions from both people who support and denounce abortion. Autocorrect on MPB Think Radio, helping you correct your auto problems. Our host is Coach Charlie Milton, ASC Certified Master Technician. Let me help save you some money working on your cars. Listen to our podcast, Autocorrect. 
classical, jazz, indie, blues, folk, bluegrass, whatever you call your music. Find it on MPB Music Radio on mpbonline.org or the MPB Public Media app or on an HD radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. When Roll the Play premiered at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in 2016, Roll the Landmark Supreme Court case was the law of the land. A lot has changed since then, especially in the Gulf South. As Aubrey Yuhas reports for the Gulf States Newsroom, an updated version of the play is being staged in an unexpected place, the capital of a state with a near total abortion ban. A quick note here. This story does contain descriptions of abortion methods that may be disturbing to some listeners. When playwright Lisa Loomer first wrote Roe, she knew she would need to update it. The abortion debate in the U.S. was far from settled. Many believed it was just a matter of time before the 1973 ruling would be overturned. And they were right. Lori Parquet is the director of the latest production of Roe put on this month by Louisiana State University's theater department in Baton Rouge. You know, there are certain lines in the play that are not true in the state of Louisiana. Even though the play was updated after Roe fell last year, Parquet says it doesn't feel totally up to date in a state where it's almost impossible to get an abortion. She even sent a letter to the play's author, pointing out issues with the script. Still, the play's opening hits home. Good evening. My name is Sarah Weddington, and I was the lawyer who argued Roe versus Wade. And tonight, I deliver its obituary. The play's preview last week was sold out. Its 200 seats were filled mostly with college undergrads, including some who were encouraged to attend as part of an intro to theater class. Anyone here remember what it was like before Roe? That's all right. You weren't alive yet. Understandable. For students, the play is both historical and contemporary. They're living in a world without Roe for the first time, and it shows. Early in the show, Weddington talks about how before abortion was legal, some hospitals had entire wards dedicated to botched procedures and at-home attempts. Some women do it themselves. They take Lysol or turpentine. They use a telephone wire. From the front row, a trio of young men wearing LSU sports gear drop their jaws in horror. A broken Coke bottle. A vacuum cleaner. These women shouldn't have to do this. It has to change. The play is meant to show the many sides of the issue, not just the pro-life and pro-choice binary. The idea is to bridge the divide by focusing on the people behind the case and their own messy views on abortion. Linda Coffey for the plaintiff. The truth is, it's about choice. Robert Flowers, representing the great state of Texas. It's about murder, plain and simple. Flip Benham, head of Operation Rescue. The truth is, it's not your body, so it's not your choice. Cast members say putting a show on about abortion at LSU feels daring. Baton Rouge isn't a blatantly liberal city like New Orleans. Instead, in the state's capital, people who identify as pro-life are likely the majority. Parquet, the director, says the role of theater is to help people understand the present. And sometimes that means going into very charged territory. She says her goal is to get the audience to lean in rather than away, 
to leave curious and more open-minded about abortion views that differ from their own. I hope everyone felt heard. Kate Zenor graduated from LSU's theater school in 2019. She plays Linda Coffey, Weddington's co-counsel, and a number of other characters on both sides of the issue. Her family was planning on seeing the show over the weekend, including her 92-year-old grandfather. They're all pro-life. My mom was asking me, like, well, is the show pro-choice or pro-life? And I kind of told her, I'm like, a lot of people who are pro-life think the show is too pro-choice, and a lot of people who are pro-choice kind of think the show is a bit too pro-life. So I'm like, we're kind of just aiming to make everyone mad a little bit. Zenor, who is pro-choice, says she didn't form her own opinion on abortion until she went to college. She hopes the show speaks directly to LSU students. It might be the first time they've ever really been confronted with the other side of the issue. So I'm really hoping it just got them thinking about what, you know, what their opinions are, what their thoughts are versus maybe what they've been told to think. While LSU's share of conservative students is a lot higher than the national average, a 2021 poll suggests a slight majority identify as liberal. After the show, students were willing to share their thoughts on the play and some on abortion more generally. What did you what did you think of it? Did it line up with what you were expecting? Um, I was not expecting this, but in a good way. I asked that a liberal or a conservative made it. I don't think my opinions change, but I won't say my opinions. <laughs> At first I felt like like a woman should have a kid, but now like I just feel like it should be open to whatever they feel. And like everybody has their own side. But you don't know everybody's story, so... Abortion is a largely settled issue among elected officials in Louisiana. Many politicians in the state are pro-life, including Democrats. Roe is dead here. But Roe, the play, lives on. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Aubrey Uhas in Baton Rouge. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership between Mississippi Public Broadcasting and public radio stations in Alabama and Louisiana. Next, the number of infants born with syphilis has grown rapidly in Mississippi since 2016. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. future depends on listener support in all shapes and sizes. One of the many ways that you can make a long-term impact is by donating land or business properties you no longer need. More information about the advantages of donating real estate to secure Mississippi Public Broadcasting's future can be found at mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. There is a growing number of newborns in Mississippi that have congenital syphilis. According to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, 10 cases were identified in Mississippi in 2016. Last year, 110 babies were diagnosed. That's an increase of more than 1,000 percent in just six years. Infants contract congenital syphilis in the womb, and the disease has a 40% fatality rate if left untreated. Our Mike McEwen speaks with Dr. Thomas Dobbs, Dean of the School of Population Health at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Dr. Dobbs helped author the report with the CDC. He says congenital syphilis is one of the many contributing factors for Mississippi's ranking as one of the deadliest places for newborns in the country. It's pretty horrifying. And when we were doing our research, we didn't really realize that the trends were similar across the country. 
And as bad as Mississippi is, these are things that have been seen in other states as well. So there's a lot of things that, that go into this. Um, uh, but, you know, part of the reason is there's just a lot more syphilis in the population. And so women are, are getting exposed to syphilis. We've seen a shift in the population who has syphilis. It's been it's a growing proportion of women who are reproductive age. And so that certainly puts, puts people at risk. Um, we have seen a, a lot of adverse health outcomes for these babies, including miscarriages, uh, stillbirths, and deaths. And we know that about 40% of untreated uh, uh, babies in the womb will not make it if we don't treat syphilis. Now, the reasons for this are, are hard to know for sure, um, but clearly one of the biggest factors is that we have um, seen a, a decline in public health resources uh, in people who are out there tracking down infectious disease cases like syphilis, making sure that people and their partners are treated. And without having that resource, we are allowing syphilis to really explode in the population. It's stuff that we've seen before and we've had to fight back, and we do sort of historically will invest and then sort of retract our investment, and these sorts of things are going to just come back. Is there any indication as to why women are at greater risk of contracting syphilis? The group of folks that are at highest risk are going to be uh, men who have sex with men, and that's going to be the highest proportion. But we've seen a shift from men uh, to women. It's not entirely clear why that shift has occurred, but it's, it's easy to understand that if you know, syphilis is a funny disease where you, you really only know it if you can see it when, you, when it first happens. It causes a painless ulcer uh, on the genitalia. And, and on a male, normally you can see it. But in a female, a lot of times that infection will be internal and cannot be seen. And so most people who are, are walking around with syphilis don't know they have it. Syphilis is something you have to treat to get rid of. It's not something you just get and your body clears it out. So you got to figure out, does someone have syphilis? And if they do, get the treatment. The thing that's kind of crazy, especially around the situation with the pregnant women, is most women and you know women who have recently contracted syphilis, all you have to do is get a single shot of penicillin, of a certain form of penicillin, and it's curative. The, the key is, is to find uh, the women, make sure that women in pregnancy are identified early so that we can get, get them in treatment, and then connect them to treatment so that they can be cured. Are there any potential health impacts for either newborns or infants who contract syphilis from their mothers? Oh, absolutely. You know, like I mentioned, a large number of them, about 40%, would not survive. So that's huge. Now, most of those are going to be miscarriages and stillbirths. And so, but there are numerous deaths in infants that we've seen. And of, of those infants that, that don't die, uh, you know, you certainly want to treat the syphilis early to try to m- mitigate any long-term effects. But neurologic changes, brain damage, bony abnormalities, vision loss, deafness, these are all things that can happen if we do not treat babies with syphilis if they're born with it. And in the process of conducting the research for that report, were there any characteristics, maybe a group of them, uh, that put infants at greater risk or newborns at greater risk of contracting it? Of the babies who ended up having syphilis, there were several different risk factors that were predominant. We did see that it was uh, mostly among those who were covered by Medicaid, about more than 90% of the cases were covered by Medicaid. Um, keep in mind, though, that the majority of births are in Medicaid in Mississippi anyway. We did see a preponderance in black Mississippians, but we also saw that the proportion of, of white babies born with syphilis is growing quickly. Everybody is at risk. And so the other thing that we saw, there was delays in prenatal care and delays in testing. And so a lot of it's going to be a system-based situation where our health system has not done a good job 
of finding women early, treating them so that the babies can be safe. It isn't. It wasn't uh, required to test all moms in, in pregnancy for syphilis, but now it is mandated, and so we're hoping to have an impact with that enhanced testing. Could you speak to maybe where Mississippi's rate increased tenfold in that six-year period? Where does that compare to the national rate that you said has also been rising? Based on the data that had been available until recently, I thought that we were far above the national norm. But it's not really. A lot of other states, uh, especially even in the West, the West of the, of the country is seeing a lot of syphilis. California, New Mexico, Oregon, we're seeing a lot of syphilis. So we're kind of on par with some of those other states. Um, you know, all the states aren't affected the same sort of way, but um, places that see income in, income disparities, um, wealth disparities, uh, a lot of social determinant issues among different parts of the population, it's different for every state. But, you know, un- unfortunately for the country and for Mississippi, too, you know, we're kind of all on par with this rapid increase in syphilis. Are there any other social determinants you all came across in your research or just in your general expertise other than income? You know, we, we do think that there's some other factors at play, um, particularly if we look at Mississippi. You know, we're having an ongoing issue with uh, OB deserts, right, obstetrics care deserts, because there aren't as many services available in rural areas or small towns. And we do know that when you have these barriers like distance and transportation is a, a phenomenal barrier as far as folks getting into care, the situation that we have with not having doctors in the community having hospitals pulling back on services, and then people not having the resources to drive long distances just for a prenatal care checkup, those are major factors in putting our babies at risk. Kind of a major issue and maybe the issue that defined this year's election was Medicaid expansion and solving what some have described as a rural hospital crisis here in Mississippi. Could you speak a little more about how those issues might impact upon this phenomenon of such starkly rising syphilis cases? Yeah, you know, so certainly having access to health insurance is a great way to make sure people have better access to care, and that's 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 really true. In a way, we're really fortunate in the sense that for pregnant women, access to Medicaid is universally available for, for most women, and so that's really good. So all women, for the most part, can get on Medicaid if they don't have insurance at the time of pregnancy. What we don't have and would be super useful is Mississippi is only one of three states that doesn't have either Medicaid expansion or presumptive eligibility. And presumptive eligibility is basically um, people can get treated right away once they're acknowledged being pregnant and Medicaid will assume the cost of it, uh, anticipating that they will achieve coverage. Not having that immediate availability of insurance is a real challenge and we know does delay engagement in prenatal care weeks, if not months, in those critical time periods when we can you know, not only make sure that, that that moms with syphilis are treated, but other issues like hypertension, um, other things that are going to be threatening to the pregnancy can be addressed early in prenatal care. There's so many other things that are driving the, f- the fact that Mississippi has the highest infant mortality rate, and getting women into prenatal care early is absolutely essential. Dr. Dobbs, Thomas Dobbs, is Dean of the Population Health at the University, that School of Population Health at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.